Take your Bibles and turn with us, please, to Genesis chapter number 39. And again, we say welcome to our visitors and then those that may be listening on the parking lot and out in the fellowship hall and then through our live stream. We appreciate you being a part of today's service. We'll continue our look into the life of Joseph. Uh, Warren, I want to say thank you for always having an integrity and honesty before us. And uh, I've said this about Greg and Shelley's boys. All three of them are big, strong guys. But all three of them have a sensitivity to them. When God's moving on them, they're not afraid to weep or testify or get in an altar and pray or pray with you and help you shoulder your load. And I appreciate that out of all three of those men. All right, Genesis 39, we're going to read all of the chapters. You find your place. Let's read beginning in verse 1. Would you, uh, would you stand with us, please, if you can, and you will. I'm interested this morning in Joseph, a young man, tested. Joseph, a young man, tested. The Bible says, beginning in verse number 1, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. It's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't say that Joseph told his master that I, he didn't say to him, I've trusted the God of my father, the God of my grandfather, my great-grandfather. The God of my people. But the Bible says in verse 2 that, um, uh, verse number 3, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer. In his house, and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not all he had save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business. And there was none of the men of the house there within. And she called him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. And it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. And he came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, 
that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up her garment by her. And she laid up his garment, excuse me, by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, and his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. That's a recurring theme in Joseph's life, you know. The Lord's making even his enemies to be at peace with him. God can do that. Now, God doesn't always do that, but God can do that. And he does that with Joseph in his life. Verse 22, And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison, and whatsoever he, uh, they did there, he was the doer of it. Then the last verse, The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Thank you. Joseph, a young man, tested. This will be our fourth message, looking at the life of Joseph. Of course, the first message that we um, took note of was somewhat of an overview message. We looked at Psalm 105, and the section of Scripture there in that psalm that deals with Joseph, and how God used Joseph to help preserve his people. You remember we titled that Joseph a man with iron in his soul. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of ingredients and a lot of time going into Joseph's life to put iron into his soul, uh, to bring him to the place that God would, would put him uh, in command in Egypt to spare two countries. He'll put two countries on his shoulders and walk them through a time of plenty, seven years, and then seven years of famine. Joseph, a man with iron in his soul. We look then at Genesis chapter number 37, verses 1 through 11, and uh, noted Joseph, a young man, singled out. You remember we said that he singled out by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. He was singled out by his father and shown favoritism. He was singled out by his brothers and hated. And then he is singled out by God and given dreams. We move then to the larger section of chapter 37, and we noted that Joseph, a young man, hated You would think that if someone is chosen of the Lord to be used by him uh, in his service, that um, everybody would support that individual, but that's never the case. We talked about Joseph and his journey. He had no idea when he set out to go check on his brothers that day. He said goodbye to his old blind granddaddy. He had no idea he'd never see him again this side of eternity. He had no idea where his journey was going to take him. And how many years it would be before he would see the rest of his family this side of eternity. We spoke of the conspiracy against Joseph, the lying to Jacob about Joseph. You remember they brought the coat of many colors. They'd killed a, a goat, a kid. They, they drenched Joseph's coat of many colors in blood, showed it to their, their daddy. And he said, yes, this is my son Joseph's coat. Surely a, a wild beast has torn him into pieces. And then we spoke lastly of the agony of Joseph. Later on, the brothers will confess one to another 
that they saw the anguish of Joseph's soul as he was being taken away in the caravan by the Ishmaelites toward Egypt. This morning, Joseph, a young man, tried. We'll try to somewhat give you the whole chapter this morning and divide it as follows. I'm interested in the favor of God upon Joseph's life, verses 1 through 6, and I'll say a word about our own salvation and what we find uh, when we came to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say a word in verses 7 through 18 about Potiphar's wife, how that she desires a place in Joseph's life. And I want to say something about temptation. We all face temptation. You may sit out there today and say, no, I haven't been tempted Hang around a while. You will be. We all face temptation. And then lastly, verses 19 through 23, a false accusation leads to wrong imprisonment in Joseph's life. And I want to say a word about discrimination. You may be here today and you have experienced some discrimination. Maybe you got passed over on the job. Somebody else got promoted because you are a child of God. Or maybe in some other area of your life you have faced discrimination because of your convictions, your principles that are found anchored in the Word of God. Let's get right to it. Verses 1 to 6. I want you to consider with me the favor of God is upon Joseph's life. As we notice this, I'll say before we leave this heading, uh, something about our salvation. Uh, God has a special purpose for Joseph's life. And what God's going to do in Joseph's life is to accomplish in other people's lives. God has special purpose for Joseph. He's raising him up. And the Bible teaches us that even though the devil has, uh, has put his crosshair on Joseph's life, even though his, his brothers, even his own family, is against him, it would seem his circumstances are against him. You might even say that life itself seems to begin, uh, be against uh, Joseph. But you'll also find that the Lord is for him. And the Lord is with him. The favor of God is upon Joseph's life. You'll notice in verse number 2, the Bible says, and maybe you'll take your pen and underline these phrases as we go through them again. In verse number 2, the Bible says, and the Lord was with Joseph. Verse number 3 says, and his master saw that the Lord was with him. Verse 3 goes on and says, the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Verse number 5, you'll notice where the Bible says, The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Have you ever felt that you reaped blessings of the Lord because of some child of God and your connection to them? You have felt that you have been blessed because uh, there's someone in your family that has a close walk with the Lord. Or maybe somebody in our church that has been a blessing to you and has ministered to you. You feel as though you have reaped blessings because of someone else in, in your life that God has blessed greatly. That verse goes on and says, The blessing of the Lord was upon all he had in the house and in the field. And then if you'll skip on down to verse 21. The Bible says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And then in the last verse of this chapter, you'll note where the Bible says, The Lord was with him, and that which he did, the Lord made it to, to prosper. And so the Lord is with Joseph. Uh, Joseph is in a new land. Notice with me in verse number 1, the Bible says, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt. 
when we left off our last message looking at Joseph's life, we pointed out in verse 28 of chapter number 37 uh, that the Bible says they brought Joseph into Egypt. It's where God needs him to be. He doesn't understand it at the time, but that's where he needs to be. He's in a new land. The location is different. Joseph now resides in Egypt. He's been brought to the Nile River Basin. It's the wealthiest culture that is known in that era of time. It's the most cultured group of people, the most developed. As a matter of fact, we've learned from archaeologists and historians that that the Egyptians in this particular era of time, they were very advanced mathematically. They were very advanced um, uh, in a literal sense as far as the arts are concerned. Uh, They were very advanced architecturally. They were very advanced medicinally. Uh, They're a very advanced group of people. Archaeologists has, of course, uh, uh, revealed to us some of the engineering advancements in that day was beyond comprehension. Uh, There were were boulders and stones that were carved and and beaten out with a chisel and with a hammer and were lifted into the air, sometimes four and five stories high. This was, of course, long before there was a such thing as, as a modern advancement in, in, in machinery. And, of course, they found a way in their ingenuity uh, to get it done. Uh, there were warm and cold air currents floated from the earth, archaeologists tell us, that was floated up into some of the buildings and dwellings uh, that the Egyptians occupied. And, of course, uh, their clothing, their arts, their music, their literature, that was all envied in their day. The location is different. Joseph's not accustomed to this. He's from the countryside. He's from a rural area. He's a sheep herder. His people are shepherds. They graze sheep. Uh, they take care of their pasture land. Uh, they, uh, they, they take the wool from their sheep. They market it. They use it for their own family and the needs that they have. The location is now different for, for Joseph. The setting is different. Again, he's in Egypt now. As a matter of fact, we know that he comes in in the 10th reign of the 31 Egyptian empires. When he gets to Egypt, the sphinx, the reclining sphinx has already been carved out. There are already pyramids that exist in Egypt whenever he comes here. He's not accustomed to seeing such sight in in all of his born days. There are only two classes of people, really, among the Egyptians. There are those that are extremely wealthy And then there are the Egyptians that just don't have much of anything. They would have beat out a living and dug a living out of the ground. But then there was another uh, area in their society, and that was the slaves uh, that existed as well in order to serve those that that were wealthy. Joseph, as as he comes to Egypt, you can almost see him as he would have been tied and barefoot. As he begins to make his way through the streets and this Nile River Basin. He's seen sights he's never seen. As a matter of fact, he would have heard hymns that would have been sung throughout the air. The air would have been filled with these hymns. They would have been played on stringed instruments and wind percussion instruments. They would have been piped. They're a pagan people, and this music is playing all around him. The language is different. The people are different. The dress is different. The atmosphere is different. It must have been culture shock. For Joseph. Joseph is in a new land. He's also now involved and will be a part of a new livelihood. You'll look back to verse number one 
where the Bible says, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, uh, which he had brought, which had brought him down thither. Joseph's made his way. He's been taken by the Ishmaelites. They would have marketed in Egypt whatever they would have had to market. And one of their items to market is Joseph himself. They bought him for a few pieces of silver. He belongs to them now. And now they're going to sell him on the auction block. Potiphar, the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, he's going to be the one that will purchase Joseph. And now Joseph no longer wears his, his coat of preference his garment of privilege, his coat of many colors, but rather he just kind of disappears now into the background of many people as he begins to wear the common garment of the slave. Joseph is in a new land. He now is, is living and becoming a part of a new livelihood. And then Joseph experiences new blessings. Look at verses 2 to 6, reading all the verses. The Bible says, And the Lord was with Joseph, And he was a prosperous man. How about that? Even as a slave, even though he's been mistreated, even though he's been the recipient of hatred from his own family, those closest to him have sold him into slavery. The Bible says in verse number 2, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Reading verses 3 to 6. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight. That is, he found grace in Potiphar's sight. And he served him. The Bible does not say that he tried to resist him. The Bible does not say one time that Joseph ever became bitter because of what was dealt him in life. Though he's been betrayed and mistreated, he's not trying to tunnel his way out of Egypt. He's not trying to escape. Perhaps I would have. Perhaps you would have. But Joseph decides, I'll go to work right where I am in life. I may not have what everyone else has afforded me. I may not have the status someone else has. I may not have the privileges and luxury someone else has. But I do have God, and so I'm going to work right where I am. The Bible says, and Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house. And all that he had, he put into his hand. In other words, Potiphar saw that God was blessing and using and prospering Joseph, and he takes his set of keys, so to speak, and puts them in Joseph's hand. We're going to read in just a moment that Potiphar didn't, he didn't consider anything going on in his life. Joseph is now overseer of all of his household. It's what was known in that day as a steward of the house. And all the business, if there's business to be done, go see Joseph. If there are decisions to be made, go see Joseph. Joseph is trusted wholeheartedly by Potiphar. He takes care of the finances of Potiphar. He takes care of the other slaves. All the business, the administrative qualities and duties of Potiphar are now handed over and are now in the charge of Joseph. You'll remember a few years back when we looked at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the gift of administrations. Some of you have that gift. Some do not. We don't begrudge those who do have it. Some see things in detail. We have two or three of you men and two or three of you ladies. I could call your name. And I think the rest of the the body here, whether they be listening in here or outside, uh, would have to agree. We have some people right here that have that gift. I mean, you just have that. You see everything in a detailed way. You don't just see the surface, but you see beyond the surface. Joseph knew what it took 
He has that. God has given that to him. He knows what it takes to to be an administrator over the affairs of Potiphar. And, of course, he's going to rule the land of Egypt before this thing's over with. Verse number 5 and 6. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he knew not all he had save the bread which he did eat. How about that? All he knows is the bread that's put before him on the table. The rest of it's left in Joseph's care. He trusts him that much. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. Joseph is in a new land. He is living a new livelihood. And he experiences new blessings in this new land that he lives. Earning a living or beating out a living uh, in uh, where he may where he finds himself. In other words, God blesses Joseph right where he's at. That ought to encourage all of our hearts today. It doesn't matter where you are in life. If you belong to the Lord, God can bless you, and God can use you right where you are, in the home where you live, on the job where you earn your living. If you are a housewife, God can bless you where you are. If you are a college student, God can bless you where you are. Some of you are in construction. God can bless you where you are. Some of you are retirees. Some of you are college students. God can bless you where you are. Some are hairdressers like myself. Can I get a witness right there? God can bless you where you are. Some of you are in the medical world. We have a teacher that is here with us. God can bless you and use you right where you are. That ought to encourage all of us. When I consider Joseph and his new life, the new blessings that God is, is bestowing upon his life, I'm encouraged in Joseph. I'm convinced he had an upward look. You remember our second message. We, I said to you one thing that really thrills my soul about the life of Joseph is that he has a God consciousness about him. Even church-going folk don't always have that. Even sometimes church-going folk that are faithful, sometimes it uh, seems like the walls are coming down around someone's life, and the last thing they do is seek out God. They can see what the devil's doing, maybe what somebody else is doing, maybe even where they have dropped the ball. But one of the last areas they begin to gaze in upon is the area of what God may be doing in their life. Joseph is a man who is aware of God's presence in his life. Now, there are others who are aware. Right here in this 39th chapter, seven or eight times, you'll find where there are those that can look in on his life and say, indeed, the hand of God is upon this young man. But Joseph had to be keenly aware of the hand of God being upon his life as well. Joseph is willing to be used right where he's at. As the world would say, he's willing to bloom where he is planted. Seth Johnson is a preacher from Wales. And 120 years ago, he was preaching a sermon. And this story has been passed down to us over the years by historians that come out of the Welsh revival. But 120 years ago, Seth Johnson was preaching And he made this statement. He said, God will use anyone that is willing to be bent by him. Little did he know that Evan Roberts was sitting in the congregation, just a handful of people that night. As he made that statement, God is willing to use anyone that is willing for him to bend him or to be bent by God. Evan Roberts, if you know anything about revivals of yesteryear, you have to know something about the Welsh revival of 1904 and 1905. And if you know anything about the Welsh Revival, you also know that the name Evan Roberts and the Welsh Revival are synonymous. 
You can't speak of the Welsh Revival without thinking of Evan Roberts. And you can't think of Evan Roberts without thinking of the Welsh Revival. It lasted some two years. Evan Roberts never wanted any, any recognition. As a matter of fact, toward the end of 1905, when people began to sort of laud him and applaud him and give him recognition, Evan Roberts kind of stole away to himself. He knew that God is the only one that deserved any glory. But that night when Seth Johnson was preaching his sermon about the will of God for a man's life, and he made that statement that God is willing to use any man that is willing to be bent by God. Evan Roberts, no one knew it, but he and God. But that night he bowed his head in the congregation and said, God, whatever that means, I'm willing to be bent by you. Send revival to our people. And, of course, some believe as many as 100,000 or better were swept in to, uh, to know the Lord, were saved during those days. And revival fires uh, flamed across uh, Wales and, and that region and lasted some, some two years. Joseph is willing to be bent by God in a strange land under trying circumstances. When I consider Joseph in his new life and the new blessings he's in enjoying as well, I also think of the unfailing certainties of the believer. Consider this with me. First of all, the Bible says in our first phrase that gives us this testimony as to the Lord being with Joseph in verse 2 when the Bible says, and the Lord was with Joseph. And then many other times I think about the Lord's unfailing presence in the life of his people. Two verses you're very familiar with. And if you're not familiar with them, you're to underline them. Write them down. Get familiar with them. Memorize these short pieces of these phrases of New Testament truth. Jesus standing before his ascension back to the Father. He says to, he says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, he said, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. That word amen means truth. He said, Know this of a certainty. Know this of a truth, I am with you into the, uh, even unto the end of the world. I'm with you all the way, no matter what you face. I am with you all the way. Joseph is aware of that, even in the Old Testament, and we are aware of that today. It's not because of how we feel. Too often, I'm afraid that we confuse the feelings of the Holy Spirit. Are you listening to me? The feelings of the believer's life with the feeling of the Holy Spirit. In other words, too often, I'm, af- I'm afraid what we do is, is, is we think because we have feelings, and I'm glad we do, and I'm glad that truth touches even our emotion, even our feelings, F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S. Did you know there's some people even in the Baptist ranks that has confused the feeling of the Holy Spirit with the feelings that we have that come along and accompany salvation? God doesn't do his greatest work in the shallowest part of our being, which is our emotions, our feelings. But I'm glad, thank God, we can feel. But now listen, the filling of the Holy Spirit, those who are filled with the Spirit of God in the New Testament, are those that are filled with truth. And those that are acquainted with truth, right? And so the truth of the matter is Jesus said to his disciples, and he says to you and me today, and, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, amen. He said, so be it, truth, amen. And then Hebrews thirteen five, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You say, Preacher, I just don't always feel that way. doesn't matter how you feel. You say, Preacher, well, circumstances aren't too favorable in my life right now. I'm not interested in your circumstances this morning. You say, Preacher, well, if you just knew how somebody talked to me, I'm not interested in how somebody talks to you or about you. 
But what I am interested this morning in is the fact that the Lord has pledged his presence to his people. I'm talking about the unfailing certainties in the believer's life. And that first unfailing certainty is our Lord's unfailing presence in our lives. Oh, Puritans, I think I know where they were coming from. But they used to write of securing the Lord's presence before they saw the face of another man or even another family member. They would rise a great while before the day. And they would speak of and write of in their journals this, this business of, of securing the Lord's presence in their life before they went out into their world. And that what they're saying is, or what I think they wrote about is, they would open the Bible before they'd open what we would call the newspaper today. They would visit a while with God in prayer before they'd visit with their neighbor or work in the blacksmith shop. Before they would plow the ground, they would spend a bit of time with God and be and rest assured that, that, um, that, uh, that his presence was secure in their life. Let me give you a second unfailing certainty of God for the believer. A second one is the Lord's unfailing promises to his people. Listen to what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. He wrote, in all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen. And, um, and then he said, unto the glory of God by us. God keeps his promises to his people, you know. Brother K. Blackard in a revival sermon, he's preached countless times through the years. He uses as an illustration a lady uh, that uh, was in the hospital. Her body was failing her and her mind was failing her. And she had her Bible. And she sent for her pastor. And she had great concern. The concern was that, that, that through the years she had read her Bible through many times and had taken a pen and had underlined many promises of God. And when she would be up against the wall, it would seem in her life, she would scan through her Bible and find a promise and would pray that promise and rest in it. And it would bring her great comfort and strength as she would be up against the wall, so to speak. So the pastor came to see her and and asked what her trouble was. And she explained the situation and said, my Bible is here. said, you can tell it's well worn. I have marked all the promises I could find that God has made to me through the years and been able to. Uh, to go to one and rest in it when I'm, when I'm up against it. But she said, now I can't remember. I don't seem to be able to retrieve not one promise out of all the word of God. And he said, dear lady, he said, let me offer you comfort. He said, though you can't remember, God has not forgotten one promise he ever made to you. And God will see it through because his glory depends upon it. Did you know today that God's promises are still yea and amen? Just like Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Let me give you another unfailing certainty of God. Not only the unfailing presence of God uh, to his people and the unfailing promises of God, but there's also the Lord's unfailing providence of God regarding his people. Uh, You remember we preached through the book of Esther while on the parking lot. And now even even in the life of Joseph, uh, Romans 8.28 keeps coming up. And, uh, and, And I hope you have that memorized. And when you memorize it, memorize the verse behind it behind it as well. And you'll find that God works in your life and in my life. No matter how adverse uh, or how plentiful the blessings may be, how adverse your circumstances may be, God can take it and work in spite of where you are. But just reading that one verse, Romans 8, 28, the Bible says, and we know of a certainty, Paul writes, and we know that all things work together for good. It does not say that all things are good. I've experienced things in my life, perhaps you have too, that are not good in themselves. Brother Dana Williams uses, when he preaches that verse, he has, he has referred to it often, he uses the, 
the mixing of a medical compound. And he says a lot of what we take in medicine in and of itself is poison. And it's very detrimental to the body, uh, to the human body. But you can take and mix that ingredient, just a portion of it, and several other ingredients formulating that medicine. And, and all of that medicine will be mixed together and given to you in right proportion in order to minister uh, to your body, to the needs of your body. And thereby you are profited because of. He writes, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and uh, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, thinking about that verse, let me ask you something. Do you know God in the free pardon of sin? Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me ask you another question. That verse, there are some people that qualify for that verse and, uh, and God working in their life, and there's some that do not. He says, listen to the verse again, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now, not only let me ask you, do you know God, but do you love God today? Is he preeminent in your life? If so, God can take and will take whatever may be working in your life and work it for good, though it may be bad, though there may be tears in the night, though there may be a bit of restlessness in your soul. And that we can know that we don't have to quit on God, amen, because God will take even what may bring heartache to our life and work it for good. You remember Job as he testifies as the old patriarch from the oldest book, uh, oldest intact piece of literature in all the world, the book of Job. Here's what Job said about God working providentially in his life. He said, but he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job said, I may not understand all about what's going on around me, but I'm coming out the other side of this trial better than I went in. And we know that God did a few things in Job's life just looking at Scripture. God taught Job to quit arguing with his friends and to pray for his friends. You remember that? The Bible says in Job chapter number 42 that God turned Job's captivity when he prayed for his friends. Isn't that interesting? He's willing to be self-righteous. Job was and speak up and say, no, you're calling me a hypocrite. You're blaming me. I could hear him in our day. He would say something like this. Y'all been watching too much Benny Hinn. You think that we reap bad consequently because we've done something wrong. He said, I've not done anything wrong. I came from worship when all this was put on my head. He, he, tried, to, he tried to justify himself. But we know that God teaches him not to argue with his friends. He teaches him to pray for his friends who we might say, as we've said so many times, with friends like his who needs enemies, right? They pointed their fingers at him and they accused him. And God teaches him, Job, quit arguing. You bow your head and pray for them. Love them the way that you ought to love them. And I'll do a work in your life of restoration. And God did that. God also taught and wrought patience in the life of Job. Out of all that you read about all that Job had in the beginning before his trials and all that he has at the ending when God blesses him twofold, you'll find you don't get to the book of James until you realize that God has worked patience into the, into the life of Job. And then God continues to use Job and his testimony to encourage our faith even in our day. We don't know all that God's doing, right? Sometimes we don't understand. I don't understand often what God may be doing in and about my life. I, I tried to go back in some of my old sermon notes and find the lady's name. I couldn't find it. I apologize to you. I've used it. It was probably seven, eight years ago. But a dear lady, when she was in high school, uh, she got a heart for the mission field, a particular field of service. And before she would graduate high school, it was settled in her heart. She would later in life testify to it. 
And, uh, but before she finished high school, her sister, who had three boys, fell ill. She felt it was her place to help take care of her sister and help take care of her nephews. Um, her sister died, and so she felt it was her place to raise the boys, finish raising the boys. And she still had a lot of life, and so she could finish raising the boys until they got a high school education. Then she could go to the mission field. Before the last one got his high school education completed, she too fell sickly and ill. And after months, she learned that she would never overcome her sickness. Though she would live many more years, she, she knew that, that she would never go to the mission field. She would never leave the states. And so she began to pray diligently for that particular area of service. Her pastor got under a burden for missions and began to preach it to the church and announced there would be a missions conference, their first missions conference. The oldest nephew surrendered, gave his life to missions. And you'd never guess where it was that the oldest boy eventually, though he didn't understand the night he surrendered before his church in an altar, made it known to the pastor in the church. He didn't know that night where it was that God would send him. It wasn't but just a few months he would hear of the burden on a foreign field. And it was the precise place that his aunt only she and God knew about it. It was the precise area. Over the next three or four missions conferences, the other two boys she had a hand in helping raise, they too yielded and gave themselves to serve God in missions and wound up in the same place. They would come home uh, every so often. They would come home one at a time and tell of the work of God saving souls in that particular mission field and what God was doing. She helped to raise funds back home. And though she didn't understand it when her sister fell ill and then died, and when she spent all those days taking care of feeding and washing clothes and providing a roof for those boys, she didn't understand why she couldn't go to the field. But looking back, she was able to realize, God put that in my heart and in my life. Though I thought it was for me to go, it wasn't for me. It was for me to help prepare those three boys because God was going to send those boys to the mission field. Concerning Joseph and his new life and new blessings, I'm also reminded that um, God sees farther into our future than we do. I don't know what tomorrow holds, and you don't either. And we can pretend to know. We can think by the way things are inclined to be going that maybe we know, but we really don't know what a day's going to bring. We don't know, but thank God he knows. There are Bible scholars who believe that in chapter 39 of Genesis, that 15 years pass in all the events here. There's one that believes it was 17 years and thinks he can prove it makes a good argument. Another Bible scholar says some 20 years passes of all these developments in Joseph's life. We know that a number of years pass, but I don't know that we can know exactly how they're going to shape. I mean, how many years pass, but God knows how much time it takes for him to go through all he's going to go through and shape things for his life. Here's what you'll find in this chapter. Things are bad. He arrives, he's taken to the auction block, and he's sold as a slave. And then things get a little better. He's running the household of Potiphar. But then they get worse. We're going to shift to that in just a moment. And then they'll get worse still. When we leave this chapter, you'll find that, they get, they, that they've been bad and got worse and got a little better and then got worse still you'll find that they'll get a little better while he's in the prison house, but then they're going to get worse before ultimately God's going to bring him out of the prison and make him ruler in the land. We don't know what God may see in the future. 
We can't see it. That's why we commit our futures unto him. Can I get a witness? Are you listening to me this morning? So our first heading, I'll give you a little hope. The third heading will be very brief. Somebody say amen right there. But our first heading, verses 1 through 6, you'll find the favor of God upon Joseph's life. And we're encouraged in our salvation. How many of you have heard uh, Andrew and Mary Beth's uh, album, Andrew and Mary Beth Jones? How many of y'all, y'all, any of y'all, what a blessing. They were supposed to be with us um, on our harvest day, our old-fashioned day last year. And they would be this year, but they're expecting their third one just about that time. But they're down for 2022. I want you to get to know them. They've got a, they've got a song where they've got a preacher friend saying something about much more. When you came to Christ, you didn't just get Christ. You got much, much more when you came to Christ. So it is with Joseph, so it is in our life. Notice with me, secondly, in verses 7 through 18, Potiphar's wife wants a place in Joseph's life. And I'm going to settle in on this matter of temptation here in just a moment. I want to say something about Joseph's temptation. I want to say something about his refusal. I want to say a word about the revenge that is, that is exacted on Joseph's life. Now, Potiphar's wife wants a place in Joseph's life. To me, that says something about Potiphar's wife. Uh, Egypt, without embarrassing all of us, Egypt, during this particular time in history, we know that uh, their women in society, in their Egyptian society, was more liberated. A lot of what you see today on perhaps TV or in magazines was, uh, was operative during the time when, uh, when those 31 empires of the Egyptian empires uh, were known to be uh, what they were. But thankfully, Joseph will behave godly in an ungodly setting. In an ungodly environment, Joseph will behave godly. Sometimes somebody will fall into sin and they'll say something like this. I just, I just couldn't help it. Yes, you can help it, child of God. Or uh, it just happened. That's not the way that sin happens in our lives. It doesn't just happen. But, but usually there's a well-laid plan by the world, the devil, and even our flesh a lot of times. Now, I want you to consider with me the temptation. Look, if you will, at verse number 7. The Bible says, and it came to pass after these things. Now, we don't know how many years has transpired now, but a number of years have. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, lie with me. The temptation. Our enemies are three, right, child of God? The Bible is very clear about it. Our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. You remember what uh, John wrote about in 1 John 2.16. He said, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. That is, it's not of planet Earth. That's not what he's saying when he says it is of the world, but it is of this old worldly system. This system is set up against us. You know that, don't you? If you want to live a holy life, and the Bible calls us to that, this world system is not conducive for that. You're not going to get any encouragement off your TV set. Unless you're tuned into a gospel station, you're not going to get on serious radio and, and find encouragement to live for God. You're, going, you're not going to listen to a whole lot of talk radio and be encouraged to, to live for God. Temptation comes to all. James wrote about it like this. He said, but every man is tempted. When he is drawn away of his own lust, that's an inward enemy, and enticed, that's the outward system that pulls on us. The inward system pushes on us from the inside. Nobody will ever find out. Nobody will know. 
We reason it in our own minds if we give in to sin. But temptation comes to all of us. Temptation comes to the rich and comes to the poor. Temptation comes to the educated and to the uneducated. Temptation comes to old folk and the young folk alike. Temptation comes to saved people and to lost people. Temptation comes to all. And so uh, the Bible teaches us about that. I mentioned James chapter number 1 and verse number 14 is what I quoted a moment ago. Did you know in James chapter number 4, James lists all three of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's interesting, the devil gets blamed for a whole lot that James doesn't blame the devil for. Even the world gets blamed for a lot of what James doesn't blame the world for. As a matter of fact, James, in the first ten verses, he mentions the devil one time. He mentions the world two times, but he mentions the flesh some 25 or 26 times. Usually, dear heart, we can't blame the devil nor this world because we sin willfully as a child of God. Now, temptation wears a lot of faces, right? One scholar, I want to just quote him if I may and add my own application. But he said, really, you can put temptations for the child of God under three categories. First of all, he said there are material temptations. And what he's saying in that is that's a lust for things. It's a lot of young people in trouble with credit cards because they had a lust for something they couldn't wait on. And so they thought, I'll buy it now and pay for it as I go. Sometimes it's necessary for you to, you understand what I'm saying? But a lust for things. It can be something like a shiny new car. It can be something like a dusty old antique. But you put yourself in a bind trying to, uh, trying to go after material temptations. It becomes a temptation to you. There's also personal temptations. That's a lust for prominence. Maybe you desire fame or popularity or prestige of some sort. You want a name. You want a position. You want a status of sort. And then there's sensual temptations. That's what comes here. That's a lust for another person. It's somebody you don't have legal nor moral right to put your hands on. And you'll find here that you'll find here that that's what this temptation is. It is a sensual temptation. Now let me show you back in verse number six. We didn't say anything about it. The last phrase, the last sentence of verse number six says, "And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored." In other words, that means that. Um, uh, that he has, um, he has a handsome form and a handsome face. We believe he got his looks from his mother's side. Genesis twenty nine seventeen says, Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. So in other words, Joseph, he had a face that was scumbling, and then he had a, a physique, kind of like me. Can I get a witness? It'd be right the opposite of me. And so she's drawn to it. Joseph's good looks and well-formed as a person. Our society makes much of good looks, don't they? Matter of fact, there'll be billions spent in this calendar year by those that are wanting to look like what they believe the example of Hollywood has said. Somebody said that those people in Hollywood don't even look like those people in Hollywood. There's Photoshopping and a lot of makeup. Somebody asked R.J. Wildman one time, you against makeup? And he said, no, I think any old barn looks better with a fresh coat of paint on it. Sensual temptation, if you'll study the Proverbs, when yielded to, brings with it a wound that you can get beyond, but it'll take a long time to get beyond it. 
If I were to embezzle money from this church, I could pay it back and make an apology and get out of your way and you would release me for my sin. But if I were engaged in this particular type of sin, I could make apology, get out of your way, but you would never trust me to be your pastor again. You can make restitution for any other sin, but you don't make restitution for this sin. I want, you to, I want to show you something. I've thought about this for two weeks. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. I promise you when we get to our last point, I'll shift gears and we won't be long there. And here's what I want to say. Hebrews 12, 1, very familiar portion of Scripture, verse of Scripture. But I want you to notice a phrase in this verse, and I want to say something. I want you to get this. Write this down and remember this. Temptation is personality specific. I want you to hear me when I say that. Temptation is personality specific. Watch this. In Hebrews chapter 12, if I'm going to read that verse, I've got to get out of 2 Corinthians, don't I? Hebrews 12, watch this, verse number 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, watch this, let us lay aside every weight, in other words, anything that would hold us back in running our race. Let us lay aside every weight, watch this, and the sin which does so easily beset us the sin which does so easily sideline us and i don't know what that would be in your life and you don't know what that would be in my life but there's a temptation to you that is personality specific for you that could be anything from from greed to gossip Or that desire to have prominence or lust such as Potiphar's wife has. But whatever it is, I'll guarantee you, you still wrestle on some days with that temptation that is personality specific to you. Some people wrestle with anger. Some with other sins. And what stirs you might not stir me. What stirs me might not stir you. I love David Jeremiah's take on the power of the temptation of Joseph. I just want to give you these. He said that this temptation, though come at him daily for years, it still was a surprise temptation. David Jeremiah went on to say just he and Potiphar's wife on one occasion in the house that day. Sometimes temptation does surprise you. It comes at a time when you're weak or you're vulnerable. That's why it's important that you keep short accounts with God and you walk with God. David Jeremiah went on to say that this temptation was a sustained temptation using verse number 10 of Genesis 39. And it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. She tempted him day by day by day, day after day. A sustained temptation. Sometimes we'd like to think when we've been victorious over temptation and sin that that's the end of it. But it isn't. Um, it isn't. The devil knows where to hit you and tempt you, and he knows where to hit me and tempt me. There are different temptations, different age groups. A little child might walk into the store, and you get back home, and he pulls a piece of bubble gum from his pocket. Well, that didn't stir you, but you wouldn't buy it for him. So he knew how to take it. Or it may be some other temptation. 
at another particular age in your life. It's a secret temptation. After all, only he and she would have known about it. Who's she going to tell? She's not going to tell her husband. She is a lady of political stature in the area. Who's she going to tell that she's had an affair with a slave boy? Doesn't work to her benefit. Could have been a secret nobody knew about. The devil works like that. Then if you're not careful, it can be a sensible temptation. In the sense that you sit down and you work it out in your own mind and you justify it. My wife wasn't paying me attention. My husband has been angry and upset at me for some time. I was weak. I was vulnerable. But you can't justify sin. So there's the temptation. There's the refusal. Reading verses 8 through 12, saying only a couple of things about it. Verses 8 through 12, the Bible says, But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Verses 10 through 12, And it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she called him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. The preacher's been saying this for years. He left his coat, but he kept his character. He refused. He refused. I'm thinking about right now the last time Adrian Rogers uh, held a conference at Pigeon Forge with, with preachers and their wives. Miss Joyce Rogers would, would take a, uh, they, they would be this, um, this bit of time where she would take the wives to youth ministers, pastors, whatever. She would speak to them about the ladies' side of ministry. And he would speak to the preachers. And that was at Pigeon Forge before he had the blood clot. He was battling colon cancer, wound up in the hospital, and he actually died of complications due to the blood clot. But he told about when he was in Florida, in Merritt Island, Florida, when he was in his first pastorate. And he said he didn't know. He didn't, he didn't know what boundaries were to, um, what boundaries were as far as, um, as, far as counseling. And he said he got a call. He was in the church office. He got a call. It was a lady, and she told where she lived. It was on a, in a particular apartment complex. And he said, he said, not thinking anything other than she wanted to talk to somebody that had a spiritual need. He said, I was just young and naive. He said, I knocked on the door, and when she opened the door, I knew that counseling wasn't what she had in mind. He said, I turned, and I ran back down the walkway, down the stairs, into my car, and I went home and told Joyce what had happened. The Bible tells us where to flee from some things. If you have to do like Adrian Rogers did as a young man in his 20s and turn around and run, or do like Joseph did in order to flee temptation, then you turn and run. Now, he writes, uh, or he says, is, and, um, and I'll give you this briefly, but Joseph, he says, he's, number one, I'm not going to betray Potiphar's trust. Not going to betray his trust. Anybody that may be tempted to that sin, you would do well to look your mate over real good and consider how good God's been to you. When she said or he said at the wedding altar, I do. 
what they're saying is, is I give myself to you for the rest of our life. My desire is to be toward you and you alone for the rest of our days. She's saying to him, I give myself to you and I trust you. He's saying to her, I give myself to you and I trust you. I've worked in these furniture factories around here. It's been a lot of years. Someone, if I called her name, some of you would know her working in action on the cutting table. A man made a gesture toward that you would know her. She's been faithful to the Lord for a lot of years. And she turned to this guy and she said to him, she said, don't you dare. She said, I have a Christian husband and I have a Christian home and I intend to keep both of them. And she went and spoke to her supervisor. It's not a bad thing to do. God's given you a Christian mate. You ought to cherish that Christian mate. They ought to know they can trust you. She said, he says, I'm not going to betray Potiphar. He's put me in charge of all this. He says, I'm not going to violate my own conscience. If our conscience will remain clear before God, Paul wrote of calling his own conscience into account. Old timers used to preach on the conscience. Your conscience will hold you to the highest account that it is aware of. Unless you sear your conscience, you muddy the water. Joseph had to live with himself. Joseph's brothers, their conscience, over 20 years later after they sell him into slavery, their conscience is still holding them to the account of what they did to their brother. We'll notice that at a later date. And Joseph knew ultimately in verse number 9 his sin was against God. There's the revenge, verses 13 to 18. We'll only read it. The Bible says, And it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of the house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought... See, she's not taking responsibility. She's blaming her husband here. She's not even really blaming Joseph. She's blaming her husband. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam blamed God. He said, the woman that thou gavest to me. We're good to do that, aren't we? We're living in a, amongst a society of victims. Nobody does anything wrong. They blame everybody else for everything in their lives. Verse 14, that she called unto the men of the house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in in Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice, and it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried that, that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled out. Potiphar's wife decides, if I can't have you, I'm going to hurt you. Vengeance is a wicked thing. And what this teaches us is you can do right, still be treated in a bad way. Joseph did right. You would have thought after he did right that maybe God would have moved Potiphar out of the way and put Joseph in his place. But he's going to prison now. He did right. Be careful what you listen to. As a matter of fact, I've got to the place in life 
When somebody tells me a little something, I let it go in this year usually, pick up rapid speed, and go back out this year. Be careful what you listen to. People will poison your mind about other people. And a lot of times it happens about servants of the Lord. Am I right there? Lastly, false accusation, verses 19 to 23. False accusation leads to wrongful imprisonment in Joseph's life. Let's read the verses. I want to say a few things, and I'll bring the message to a close. Verses 19 to 23, and it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. But it doesn't say his wrath was kindled against. If you're not careful, you'll miss what it says about Potiphar in verse 1 of this chapter. Watch this. Verse 1. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, watch this, captain of the guard, an Egyptian. He was the chief executioner. Somebody violated the trust of Pharaoh. He was the first one that would take him out and behead him or gore him through or torment or torture. Potiphar had legal grounds to take Joseph out and take his life, but he put him in prison instead of taking his life. Who do you think he's angry at? He's not angry at Joseph. You think he's angry at his wife? I think he's angry at himself. He knew better. He knew his wife. He knew he couldn't trust her. He's trusted Joseph with everything in his life except his wife. And he trusted Joseph regarding her or he never would have given him free reign of his house. Verses 20 through 23. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison. I love this. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him. That which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Joseph is a young man tested. Think about it with me. What did he have as he enters in all these trials in his life? What did he have? He had three things. Three things that we're aware of. Number one, he had the promises that God had made to his family. And he believed them. Number two, he had the presence of God in his life. And he's aware of that. Number three, he's got two dreams God put in his heart. They've taken his name. They've taken his name. They've taken his freedom. They didn't get those. They're still living. And he knows that God is going to see it to its fruition. I couldn't help but think about bringing this to a close today. Did you know that you and I, from the back rows to the pulpit, the four men that are up here in the sound booth working today, the two families, perhaps, that's on, or three on the parking lot, and the one family that's in the fellowship hall, and those that are listening Facebook Live, if you know the Lord, do you realize we have more resources to pull from than Joseph did in his day? We have more of a foundation than Joseph had. First thing we have is a completed copy of the Word of God. Joseph didn't actually know how this thing's going to turn out, but we do know how it turned out for Joseph. We're privileged to own a copy of the Word of God. 
the 66 books known as the Biblos, the Bible, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, and they all dovetail. There's no contradiction there. If you hear an old, somebody thinks they're an old sage, and they say, well, you know what, things got contradictions in it. Here's what you know. Either they can't read or they didn't take the time to read it. That's the Word of God. I'm privileged to read the Word of God. My wife said last night, I was talking to her this morning, I said, you rest well. And she said, yeah, I woke up about 2 o'clock. We've reached that age and stage in life. Brianna, the rest of y'all learn about that one of these days. She said, I woke up 2 o'clock. I said, what would you do, get up and eat? or what? She does some of that. And I said, what would you do? And she said, no, I got up and went to the couch and read my Bible until I got sleepy again. You can study your Bible. You can memorize your Bible. We come to hear preaching of our Bible. We're soon to get back in Sunday school and we'll hear the teaching of our Bible. Let me tell you the second thing we have. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Holy Spirit came upon men in the Old Testament but never on a permanent basis, best we can learn from the Old Testament? But now, according to Ephesians 1 and Ephesians chapter number 4, the Spirit of God has sealed us and indwells us. Joseph did not have that. We have our church services. Aren't you glad to be back in here? We assemble together. We come from different places and stations, and we come together this morning. We assemble together. We pray together. We sing together. We fellowship together. We worship together. You'll understand where I'm coming from when I say this. This is Christ Church. This is my church and your church. This is our church family. God gave us something when he gave us a church. A local body of believers that will pray for us and pray with us. And support us and encourage us and teach us. God gave us a fellowship of believers. I thought about our testimonies that we had last Sunday. I don't ever want us to get to the place we think we're too good for that. What I heard last Sunday blessed me, but it richly blessed me when I heard Jane speak up and talk about since COVID had hit, what Miss Peggy has come to mean to her. Uh, To be honest with you, I, I miss her this morning. And I was wondering when we finally got back over here in the building on the inside, and everybody practicing distance and all that, I thought, Brother David, under God, Miss Peggy ain't going to keep her hands off these babies. Ain't no way she's going to do it. Of course, ain't none of you stopped shaking hands. Some may have. I didn't notice it. If you do, I'm going to slip up on you. I'm kidding. I would respect you. But let me tell you what else we have. We have the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's through the cross of Christ that God displays his great love wherewith he loves us. Jesus suffered for us. Jesus suffered as us, and he feels pain with us. John Stott, I had the privilege of hearing him in the 90s at All Souls Church in England, stalwart of the faith. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one an infidel ridiculed as the God on the cross. He said, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? He went on to state, I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed. 
the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. He said, but each time, after a while, I had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. He said, that is the God for me. I laid aside his immunity, or he laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world for flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. God is not out of touch with our suffering today, dear heart. He's touched by it. Tom Hayes used to use as an illustration the lady up in Kentucky that was battling depression, and the husband called for the wife, or called for the pastor to come try to speak to the wife. He did. He took his coat off upon entering the door. He found the wife just as the husband said. She's in the floor. She's crying. She's, he said, foaming at her mouth. She's in such a deep state of depression. He said he went over and got on one knee. And he said, uh, said some things, quoted some verses. He said, you know, he said, are you saved? She said, you were there and led me to the Lord. I am saved. And he said, well, you know, the Lord said he'd never leave you nor forsake you. She said, that sounds pretty good, but have you ever been where I am? And he said, no, I hadn't, but there's a dear sister in the church that has. He went to the phone, rang her. She come over was moved to tears upon opening the door, seeing the lady lying in her living room before the two men. Didn't bother to remove her coat, but immediately in her tears, she went down, put one hand on one side of her face and the other on the other side and pulled her up nose to nose and said, I've been right where you, ha- right where you are. She said, you have, really? She said, I've been right where you are. And I know you think sun won't come up tomorrow, but it's coming up. And you think you're not going to survive this. But you're going to survive it. She said, you think I am? She said, think so, nothing. She said, come on, let's sit down. I want to tell you how God brought me through it. I said, let's say this. You may be going through something similar to Joseph, and I may not understand, but we have a representative, our advocate, seated at the right hand of the Father, who is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. Joseph, a young man, put to the test. He passes. The favor of God is upon Joseph's life, and we're reminded of our much more found in salvation. The eyes of Potiphar's wife are upon Joseph's life. Temptation's real to all of us. Don't ignore that. False accusation leads to wrongful imprisonment in Joseph's life. Discrimination, it's a part of all of our lives. You've got to go on. You have to walk on. Be what God wants you to be right where you are. Let's stand. Brother Greg, would you come and lead us in a hymn of invitation, please? And 